What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Sapira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny, and I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. Uh, I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagura. And we have a really interesting case that we're going to do today of Justin Helzer. And his crimes are very interesting because he's a really weird sociopathic guy. Definitely not your typical criminal, I don't think. And when he goes to prison, somehow his life gets even weirder, which you wouldn't even think is entirely possible so we're going to discuss that but first we have a listener submitted question we do appreciate everyone's questions keep them coming i check the instagram and facebook accounts at death row diaries and i then discuss all the stuff with bill and we do appreciate you following us on instagram and facebook and Telling your friends if you enjoy the show, tell them to listen. So, Matt in England asks, you know, how you actually get a weapon out onto the yard. Um, because we see this time and time again that people are stabbed uh, when they're outside in the prison yard. And yet, I know that different prisons have different rules and stuff, but it seems like they're making a point to screen for any kind of metal or anything, and yet these knives and shanks find themselves out on the yard time and time again. So what's going on there? Well, yeah, that's like the, one of the seven mysteries of the world, right? Yeah, they do scream. I think we've, we've talked about this extensively before we're let out. And this is, I'm specifically talking about death row. I'm not talking about a different main line um, because it would be easier there. But death row is like the hole in a way because you're cuffed there's no movement without a guard physically holding you as you approach the yard or go down to yard or actually go anywhere shower visits anywhere you go you have an escort and you're chained up or cuffed up that's just the way it is so you're dealing with a lot of uh i guess if you want to call it visualization they're constantly checking you you're searched any time you leave your cell you're stripped down you go through the whole bend over spread your ass lift up your nuts you know flick your ears open your mouth they search you very thoroughly they also go through all the things that you go are taking outside on top of that they put all the things that you're taking outside through an x-ray machine called a rapid scan and on top of that, they wand you with a special metal detector looking for metal devices. 
So you would think that nothing can get out. Well, okay, so all of us have seen David Blaine on television, David Copperfield, and all these magicians that, and there's a camera fixed onto their hands and the cards. And we all know these guys are not demons or angels. It's all sleight of hand. Well, imagine when you put a convict in a cell for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, and all he has to do is practice what he's doing. The art of, of distraction, uh, sleight of hand. All of these things play a part in getting weapons out there. They're not out there. That the, the officers are not putting them out there. They're not dropped by drones. They're smuggling them out there. And I, I can't tell you how every individual does it, but they do reach the yard because they're being disguised as something else or they're hidden. Let me give you a very quick overview of a situation that I witnessed and you'll think, Jesus, these guys are extreme when they want to get something out. And, and Matt, just, I mean, bear with me on this. So I saw a guy one time, he needed to get a knife out to a yard. And look, they searched him, they wanted him, and he knew it was virtually impossible. He wasn't that good at sleight of hand. So what did this guy do? So he cuts the inside of his calf, and there are veins there, so he began to bleed profusely. He cut his and little by little, every single day, he would open it up and make, put a plastic bag inside of his skin. And every day a little bit deeper. And he continued to push his fingers into the skin with a plastic bag. And he would leave the plastic bag inside of his body, inside of his skin, where his calf is. After about a month and a half, it formed kind of a cavity. So he wore his socks to his knees, and instead of a plastic bag, he slid an eight-inch knife in there. Why is that so relevant? Because when they wand you, they wand your mouth, they wand, they wand your private areas, your ass, and your feet, where your shoes are, where mostly people hide things. Never did anybody imagine that he would make a cavity in his own body and slide a knife in there. The guy got the knife out, and the guy did stab to the guy. So that's kind of a, a way of telling you how these guys do this. Not every guy uses the same plan, but to answer the listener question, that's how extreme these guys are. I hope that answers your question. It gives you kind of a, a peek into the mental attitude that these guys have. Yeah, that sounds like something <clears throat> I, I could only see an advanced secret agent doing you know someone who's like really accomplished i i just i know we've talked about it i'll never understand why you would care enough to screw up your leg but that's prison i guess yeah well they're they're very dedicated you don't have to be a, a genius to figure this stuff out just be dedicated and these guys are dedicated to their craft or whatever it is they're doing all right as i said follow us on instagram and facebook Tell a friend, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Takes about a minute or two, and it's really easy, and we do appreciate it. So we are talking about a guy named Justin Helzer. And just to start off, I would say that him being raised Mormon 
has a lot to do with his story, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. This case has everything to do with religious extreme uh, thinking. It has everything to do with cult planning. It's, it's just your perfect small cult that um, because of religious uh, just craziness, this case turns into a murder case. Yes, and I get the impression that these guys, like most Mormons I know, are somewhat privileged. I mean, they're leading a pretty good life. I I don't know that there's anything that can um, really explain his behavior, although there are several cult aspects about the Mormon church. I would officially consider it a cult, not because what they believe might be strange to some people, but because they will shun you if you attempt to leave. Uh, and that's that's a major characteristic of cults. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm one of those guys that believes that anything in moderation is good. A little church, a little religion, an aspirin, a glass of wine, all good for you. You take it to the extreme and drink five bottles a day, have a thousand aspirins a day, and go and turn, turn into a religious nut, not so good for you. And this is a perfect example of that. So yeah, this is one of those cases where religion turns some people into murderers. Yeah, and from what I saw, uh, I watched a documentary called Children of Thunder, which is what he will name his uh, budding promising cult that he's cultivating um and he i guess was this really weirdly charismatic gifted child um you know another part of the mormon religion i'm sure most people know is that they really want to convert people um it's based on this this kind of evangelizing and he's apparently really gifted at this and it's something that is valued in that culture um i guess he's just a really smooth talker and he he almost gets there's like some insinuation that he has like divine status or something and it's not just coming from him is that is that right well exactly but first of all we have to we have to really touch on the, the obvious we're talking about two guys here. There are brothers, and they're almost, well, one's the older brother, one's the younger. The older brother's name is Glenn. The younger brother who, was, who we're speaking about is Justin. And these guys, to describe them to you guys, these guys are both six foot six, six foot seven inches tall. They're very tall, but they're complete opposites. Glenn is obviously the leader. He is the charismatic, the guy who a fairly good-looking guy, knows how to talk to people, 
fairly intelligent. Um, and I knew them both. Now, Justin, on the other side, is the opposite. He's shy, follows his brother's lead, very in, in, he's influenced very quickly by things. And he believes in just about anything his brother tells him. Now, his brother Glenn, when I met them, he immediately identifies himself or introduces himself to me as I am. And I looked at this guy and I'm like, I am what? And he said, well, you know, it's, you know, I'm, he immediately went into this thing about religion, the Mormon church, and how he perceives things. Long story short, I am is referring to the Bible verse, I am he. Meaning, I am he, the savior, the prophet, etc. So that kind of tells you the kind of cat this guy is. His brother, Justin, on the other side, he describes himself or introduces himself as Yoda, like the Star Wars guy. So you kind of get a picture of what we're dealing with here. Two complete opposites. One's kind of a, a puppy. The other guy believes he's a Doberman Pinscher. Interesting. Not to mention, I am. That's not deep uh, nor interesting. And I, I'm irritated when people kind of force me to solve their stupid riddles. Uh, it does bother me. But yeah, to your point. Um, so I guess it's. It's Glenn that's the charismatic one, not Justin. Yeah, and he goes by different names. Uh, in prison, everybody calls him Ian because no one knew how to pronounce I am or, or I am. And they didn't know what he was talking about. I did. I mean, I, I grew up Norman Catholic, and I prayed the Bible, so I know what he was talking about. I'm like, get the freak out of here with this silly stuff, right? So to kind of understand where these guys came from, their whole family was, you know, Latter-day Saints. They, both of them went to school very early on, and the older one, uh, he kind of distinguished himself as a, as a very skilled talker. He was, um, you know, the, the church thought he was one of those guys that would really lead them at some point. The problem was that throughout his childhood, he had this problem with drugs he would seek drugs to escape or whatever he was doing, just enjoyed it. But um, at some point, the church found out. Let me come back. So they get word that one of their star pupils is doing drugs, so that's not good. I don't know what kind of drugs. I'm getting a meth vibe, perhaps the methiest vibe I've ever gotten. Yeah, you know, acid, um, meth, all these drugs are something that he gravitates towards. And yeah, the, the Latter-day Saints, uh, the Mormon Church finds out about it. And they are, I guess they're thoroughly disgusted that one of their star pupils is exactly that, a drug user. So it took a while and several warnings but at some point, they excommunicate him from the church, which is a huge blow to a person, especially this guy's family, um, that were really, you know, they thought this was a very special guy. His family coddled him, and they really led up to pushing him really to the point of becoming that guy in the church. They thought he would become like the pope of the, 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 the Catholic church, but in the Mormon uh, sense. 
as soon as they excommunicate him, he begins to go off the deep end. He declares himself a prophet of God. And he develops and he develops these twelve maxims he calls the twelve principles of magic. And he demands his followers to really believe in this you know, it's just a, a insane thinking, but he's got definitely three people that believe in him. One of them is his brother, Justin, and there's a young woman by the name of Don Goodman. And you're not going to believe where they met, but they meet in 1999 at a murder mystery dinner hosted by the Mormon congregation. I'm serious about this. Um, look, I don't know about you, but I, I, the way I see these people, because I know him, these guys are goofballs, okay? If these guys couldn't have hustled a, a, a criminal or a hustler in any way, shape, or form, because you'd see them a mile away coming. But normal people, people that are easily swayed, just like we talked about with Charles Manson, this guy is like a modern-day Charles Manson. A little charismatic to a normal person. He's a little freaking weird. But not weird so much that he gets away with things because how he looks, he's tall, charismatic, and he talks very well. He's very convincing. So is he going for the kind of alt, you know, the cool prophet, kind of like how you see a lot of uh, these televangelist guys that, you know, they're wearing uh, like clothing that a younger person would wear, you know, they might have like a mohawk and they think that's like super radical or something. Is he, is he kind of one of those dudes? You know, he wants to be the cool cult leader. Well, he was very young to begin with. These, these guys are all very young at this time. 1999 when they meet and with 2000 when these horrific crimes took place, they're all very young. They're in their twenties. Glenn's a little bit older, but he's still very young. And he's not, no, he doesn't do the fads. He doesn't dress funny. He doesn't have a mohawk or any of these things. You know, he goes off to Brazil and he's teaching orphans. But this is part of his plan. He's a, he's a thinker. As crazy as he is um, in that disturbed uh, religious type of guy, he had a plan. I mean, get this. So part of his plan was to train these Brazilian orphans that he was mentoring in Brazil to eventually kill Mormon leaders so he could take over and form a group called Transform America, which he would create then a state of peace and joy. Look, nobody believed this stuff but his followers. He didn't even believe it. But... It's the kind of thing that people would love to meet. Who wouldn't want a utopia of peace and joy? These are the things that people look for. This guy wasn't as nutty as Charles Manson, but you could see it in him. I could see him in him. I've met both of them. I knew Charles Manson, and obviously I knew uh, Glenn Helzer. And everything he talked about was about around religion. Everything. So it's easy to see how then that idea of taking over the Mormon church and then him taking this to a different level because this whole thing is about religion. This entire case is about one thing, 
greed, power, and power through religion. So what he does next is he, he forms what he calls the children of thunder. And in order to enact this scheme, he needs obviously money. And that's where this case comes to full uh, circle to where the acts actually take place. If we can take a little bit of a long view here, he is excommunicated from the church and that's got to be devastating, you know, for a younger person, because it means that everyone that he's ever known is, well, almost everyone he's ever known is like forbidden to talk to him. He's this pariah. I'm sure there's a lot of shame involved for him. So does he snap at this point or is he, is his ego out of control? And he's like, well, I'm just gonna, you know, retaliate by forming my own cult. I mean, especially because he was so highly regarded, it would be like if you were going to be an NBA draft pick and all of a sudden they said you can never play basketball, you know, it's not just that it was his religion so much, but you know, it was like his whole livelihood as well. Well, yeah, exactly. But with this guy, remember, he has a, he's a narcissist. As I know this guy, my most of these guys are, but he immediately turns this thing around and it's like, well, I didn't believe in what they were teaching anyways. I'm the prophet. I'm the one who spirit speaks to. And this is another thing. He, he would tell his followers that, Spirit, which is a higher plane of thinking that God talks to him directly, that when spirit speaks, uh, it, it speaks through him. So, well, I don't want to. I don't want to oversimplify it, but it, is this like a psychotic break, or is he just like really calculated and I, like how in control is he of this stuff? Well, I think that it's all manipulative. I don't think he truly believes in this stuff. I think it's his key to people's hearts, his key to manipulate people. I mean, this is my take. Like I said, I knew the guy. I was in the same yard with this clown, and I knew exactly what the kind of stuff he was feeding to people. Um, so he just basically turned the whole thing around everybody and said, look, I'm the prophet. God speaks to me. The Mormon church is completely wrong, and I'm going to take over to teach everybody the right way to think. That's how he turned it around. It wasn't like I'm excommunicated. Oh my God, you know, what do I do with my life now? They've excommunicated. He just changed gears and said, I don't need the church. I'm going to form my own uh, church. I'm going to take over everything and I'm going to teach the truth. But to do so, I need financial help. Now, at this time, he was also a stockbroker for Morgan Stanley, if I'm correct in saying. Um, the name of that uh, uh, firm, which is a financial brokerage firm. Um, and there's also a lot of questions. Was he really a stockbroker? Was he more a gopher? They was just going for coffee for people in the brokerage form. But the bottom line is he did have connections to certain clients, and that's how he targets his first victims. So he's making contacts through this through this job. There's a lot of... Uh, high-profile or respected people here, right? Yeah, with a lot of money, too. They're, they're retired people. He's, he's handling or overseeing some of the, uh, the transactions that are happening, so he knows how much money these people have, and that's where he immediately targets an elderly couple um, named Ivan 
and Annette Steinman. And this is, you know, he immediately decides, okay, if I'm going to finance my church, I need my money. And the only way to get money is by taking it. So they kidnap. I mean, this goes from a very just a notion of a guy with religious craziness and a, two people following him around to this guy taking things to a completely different level. Remember, this guy didn't go just from the, from the Mormon church to obscurity. And so let me just say this. He was married at one time, meaning Glenn, the older one. His brother is still just following him around. And he has two children. They're both girls. He also dated a Playboy uh, centerfold model at one time. So as I said, this guy's not a bad-looking guy. He's charismatic. Um, but at some point, it just flips. I believe it had a lot to do with drugs. He was using drugs at the time. Methamphetamines tend to make those illusions of grandeur even bigger in your head. And this takes a bad turn. And both his brother Justin and this young woman named Drew Goodman, or, or I'm sorry, Don Goodman, Goodman, enact a plan. They kidnap the elderly couple and they take them to the Concord home that they were renting and they drug them with a date rape drug. During this episode where they're, you know, they can barely speak and, and, and they're very almost unconscious, they make them sign, meaning they, meaning Justin, Don Goodman, and their mysterious brother, they have him sign a number of checks, meaning Ivan, the, um, the elderly uh, gentleman. And they do, they sign a number of checks, and this story has like several stages that, I, that the public doesn't really know about because this guy was really acting on instinct. He didn't really plan things that well. And that's why I said he gives the impression to be very intelligent, but he's actually very naive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's, he's definitely in over his head, and I don't know how intelligent he is, but you, when you're doing hard drugs like that, I think you got to be like a super genius to even keep things together you know, without, <laughs> without just unraveling. Uh, I mean, I don't even do drugs. Uh, never have. If I don't sleep for a day and a half, I'm halfway insane. No, exactly. I think that the most of us would feel the same way, but he seems to have a plan, but it's kind of, it's, it's the plans of a guy who has never done crimes, crimes before and believes that things happen in book form. It's like reading a book on flying an airplane. If you read the book, you think you can fly an airplane, but actually flying is a completely different thing. Well, murder is the same way. You can think about it, and all the pieces fit in your head, but when they're actually developing in real life, they don't happen like that. For example, he was dating Selena Bishop, who is was a 28-year-old daughter of blues guitarist Elvin Bishop, the guy that came out that song Fool Around With Girl in the 70s. So he's dating this girl, but he has a pretty good plan, at least in his head, that he's only using her because what he wants is to get her to 
cash the checks that the elderly couple have now signed. Of course, this is happening weeks before the actual kidnapping happens. These already have a plan in place. And Selena Bishop is supposed to cash these checks into her account. She has no idea what's happening. None. He tells her, You have 60 seconds remaining. I have a huge inheritance coming, and I want to hide the money from my ex-wife. So in order to hide it, the only way I can do it is if somebody not connected to me opens an account and cashes the checks. You know? It's crazy that he thinks this is actually going to be to get away with it. Yeah, I got the impression that he's able to attract people, women, you know, um, like this eventual Playboy centerfold. But I think after they're exposed to him for a period of time, you know, they see that there was kind of a, a veil there and that they probably really don't like this guy. So I think he actually calculates that he starts targeting uh, women who maybe don't have as much uh, mental fortitude. I mean, this woman went on to be a, a centerfold. That's a job that a lot of people want. You know, she's probably got some moxie or whatever. And th I think he maybe starts going for low-hanging fruit at some point. Well, with this guy, it's, you know, at first, the, the packaging looks pretty good. Tall guy, semi-good-looking, uh, seems intelligent, well-spoken, charismatic. He has the package. But once you get to know this guy, it just, it falls apart very quickly. At least it did to me. You know, I thought, oh, this guy should look crap. You know, all this crazy stuff. And I think that most people in, in normal walks of life that don't need a religious fanatic in their lives to say, yeah, I'm good being on this guy. I think that's what women probably felt with this guy. But, um, you know, he does have a plan. I mean, it's, 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 it's a dumb plan, and I'll explain why, but he has a plan. So all these things are happening in the background, but he's appearing to this this girl, Selena uh, Bishop, you know, as the mysterious boyfriend. He changes his name, but he miscalculates because she tells her friends that she's dating this guy named Glenn, and he changes his name to something else. And, and it's really mysterious, but other people notice him. He goes to her job to pick her up. So people are noticing this guy, and that isn't good for his plan. So as I was saying, they, they, they get the, the elderly couple to sign these checks. And at this point, they know there's no way in the world that they can get away with this unless they eliminate the elderly couple. And even that, they botch it. You know... <laughs> This guy buys, gets these two Rottweilers, and he thinks that once he kills the, the, the LZ couple, he's going to feed the bodies to the, the freaking dogs. I don't know about you, but a, a Rottweiler using a Tyrannosaurus Rex is not going to eat an entire body. At least not then and there. And that's when he realizes, oh, that's not going to work. But it worked in his head when he first thought of it. And um, so as soon as they get the checks, this woman named Don Goodman, who, by the way, testified against both of them, and that's how we know everything going on here, and she calls it a house of horrors where they're living, she goes to the bank, and she cashes those checks, or she deposits those checks. 
So as I said, this is going to be part of the way they finance the children of thunder and the, and the, the hastening of Christ's return to the earth. This is their whole plan. Um, so as soon as they do that, she comes back and she finds both the elderly couple dead. And, you know, it was just a mess to begin with. They, they tried to strangle them. They tried cutting their throats. It, it just didn't work. Um, and finally, when they they kill the couple, these guys decide, okay, the Rottweilers can't eat the people, so let's dismember them. So they take the head, they decapitate them, they cut arms off, and they're chipping teeth out so they can't identify the bodies. They buy these huge, uh, I guess you want to call them duffel bags, nylon duffel bags, stuff the bodies in there. And then the following day, they, on August the 2nd, they decide, okay, Selena Bishop has to die. She knows about us, and not only does she have to die, but her mother has to die too because she saw me once. This is to protect the elder uh, brother named Glenn because the younger one, Justin, has never been seen before. He's just like an obscure guy here. He's doing the dirty work, killing, decapitating, chipping teeth out, but it's the older one that's the mastermind of this, and he's the one that people have seen, which he doesn't like. So they bring Selena Bishop to the house, the Concord home, and they hit her over the head of the hammer and, and kill her so that she can't, you know, target anybody or tell anybody what really happened because her really job was to deposit checks and now uh, Don Goodman is the one who did it. So they didn't need this person. So they killed her. And she also is dismembered and stuck in these bags. Um, but that's not good enough because there is still uh, Selena's mother named Jennifer. So they go to the house. And while they're asleep, they burst in and they shoot the mother, but her boyfriend, a guy by the name of James Gamble, happened to be there, and they kill him as well. So now there's five people dead in a matter of a couple of days. So you're obviously an expert on crime in, in that you're immersed in it from the people you deal with. I feel that this is almost a rookie mistake. When you get into the mindset of, I have to kill everyone that knows about something I did, you know, I just feel like you're digging yourself a deeper and deeper hole. You know, you, you just can't kill everyone. It, you're, you're statistically and probability wise, that's a, a no win situation. Am I correct or, or maybe I'm wrong? Correct. But see, this all happens in this guy's mind. And as I spoke before about this, you know, he says that he's being guided by a higher power. And when all this is taking place, he refers to spirit. Spirit has told him to do these things to hasten the, the, uh, the arrival of Christ on earth. So now they have five people dead. And the Rottweiler thing with dogs is not going to work. So he consults with spirits, and spirit speaks to the elder, to the elder Helzer, and now 
the plan is you must dump the bodies in the Sacramento River. But first, you must buy some sport utility nylon bags and weigh them down with rocks. And we know, we all seen Barnaby Jones. This comes out of a, a Hollywood script. He doesn't know what he's doing. So they, they do this, they take the bodies and they go to dump them in, in the Sacramento River. <laughs> Note to self, bodies, when they're cut up or whatever, gases form and they float. And actually, that's exactly what happens. Those bodies floated. And of course, the authorities are notified of these nylon bags that smell. They go to discover that there are a bunch of bodies in there. They don't know who they are yet, but now they're going to be doing DNA testing. They're going to be checking for fingerprints. That's how they discover that there are actually five bodies here. And when they identify the bodies, they immediately know who's involved. Not difficult to connect the dots. Like I said, I mean, you're killing people that you're associated with. You, you're not going to get away with that. Um, probably should have burned them, I would guess. Do we know how much money we're talking about here? Yeah, you're talking about several hundred thousand dollars. I mean, they, they had a, a number of hundred thousand dollar checks signed and they were deposited. So that's what they were going to use to you know, start this cult, basically. But look, if he had any brains whatsoever, you don't, there's no bank in the world that's going to allow you to deposit and pull out $100,000 cash. They should have been smaller checks. But look, hindsight is, is twenty twenty, and I can sit here and play, uh, you know, Monday night quarterback or, or, or Monday morning quarterback, but these just mistakes they made one after the other. Killing five too because they possibly can connect the older brother. Yeah, it's, it's a little ridiculous. Um, they didn't have to kill Selena Bishop or anybody. She didn't know what happened. But this is the paranoia setting in. The methamphetamines, the different drugs, they're setting in. Now he's looking behind his shoulder. Who knew about me? How did he know about me? Is there a connection? That's what's speaking here. Not spirit, but lack of sleep, methamphetamines, and just plain stupidity a guy who's really not a criminal this guy is not by definition a career criminal he's never committed crimes before he had some drug use maybe he sold some ecstasy at, at clubs that's not really a criminal mentality so when he's faced with committing murders he's a beginner he doesn't know what the hell he's doing um so is he a criminal absolutely he committed murders but he's not a criminal by definition that he had been doing this for years and understood what he was doing. Everything he was doing was like reading a, a manual on how to commit murder. And when you do that, you're going to get hit in the mouth. And if you don't plan for it, you're going to get caught right away. That's what happens to these guys. So the story goes forward, and of course, they are arrested. The two brothers don't say anything, but their accomplice... The young lady, Drew uh, Goodman, she immediately uh, begins to cooperate with the authorities, and she becomes the star witness against them. She's the one that accounts for everything that was taking place in the house, how it happened, when it happened, what each individual did, and why they did it. 
So it goes south for them. And look, and this is how how naive these guys are, both Justin Hauser as well as Glenn. And this story, of course, gets a lot weirder once they get to prison, which we'll get to. But let me just tell you what happens in the county jail with these two clowns. So they're in the county jail, and some guy who is a hustler and is a criminal approaches the elder Helzer. Um, he tells him about a plan that he has to get him out of prison. But he needs $10,000 to do it. But it has to be put in an unmarked bag and left at a certain location for him to help him get out. Let me come right back because you're going to love this one, Matt. All right, so <laughs> you're going to love this. It makes me chuckle that someone could be so naive. So this cat tells him, listen, I have a plan of getting out of here. We're going to escape. And how we're going to do it is, you know, here's the plan and here's how we're going to do it. And I need $10,000. And I want you to put it in a paper bag and I want you to put it in a certain location. If you do that, we'll allow you to come with us. You know, we'll help you get identification, but this has to be done immediately because we don't have time. If not, you don't come with us and we do it on our own. Of course, in his mind, he's thinking he's freaking Batman or the Penguin or, or the Joker or something, and he gets one of his family members to get $10,000 cash, stick it in a paper bag, and put it somewhere next to a mailbox where this guy's people pick it up. Once they have the money, they tell him, hey, you're burnt. Screw you. What does he do? Zip. Zero. Nada. He got burned. They just hustled him. This is a guy who's supposed to be this manipulative hustler. As I said, he was a novice. He had no idea when he got thrown in a swimming pool with real hustlers, what would have happened or what would happen to him? He gets taken for everything he has. Yeah, is he just, is he used to taking advantage of people so he just thinks it's much easier than, than it actually is? Well, I think that he's, like I said, he's able to hustle people who are not criminal, people who don't have any idea how criminals really act. And he's just charismatic, that's it. He has a twisted mind, but he's charismatic. That's it. He doesn't have the real chops of a criminal. He doesn't know what to do when he gets around real criminals. That's exactly... He gets taken for $10,000. And he does nothing about it. When they tell him, you're burned, that's it. The guy gets released because, of course, this guy didn't check. Well, let's see what this guy's here for. Is he a murderer? Is he going to be here for 30, 40 years? The guy had three months to go. <laughs> right. He just hustled him. That was it. So, even though he's this big guy, you know, tall guy, I get the impression he's not much of a fighter. He and his brother get convicted of everything because of his prime partner, the young lady Drew Goodman. She testified to convict him, and when they're sentenced to death, they're brought to death row. Why I'm mentioning that now is because there was an incident where the elder uh, Helzer was on the yard 
And as you mentioned, he's six six, all six six, possibly six seven. A big guy. Another guy that's no more than five foot eleven assaulted him, punched him in the face, knocked him out, punched his eyes out, uh, gave him black eyes, broke his nose, and he did zip zero nada. He just turned and told the guy, I'm not going to fight you. And with some silly spiritual, God wouldn't want me to fight back. And he got his ass whooped. And luckily for him, the guy who was fighting him uh, was kind of a pussy too. And didn't have a knife on him. He just punched him out. So he basically gets assaulted and beat up on the yard. And he does zero. He you know, just says, God wouldn't want me to fight back. And that was it. I guess the whole getting slapped and just turning the other cheek is what he was thinking. Yeah, that might work in the spiritual world. Not so much in San Quentin's death row where it's a very, very physical world. Well, even if you're at a prep school, if a kid starts messing with you and you do nothing, I mean, you're going to have a really tough time going forward. I mean, you know, people are looking to take advantage and it's just amplified in prison to a degree that you know no one could probably really know until they've been there you're absolutely right i mean these guys from the yard look these guys were not rapists they weren't child molesters so really no one was going to mess them because their cases didn't insult anybody so in that sense they were all right yeah these yards are dangerous but no one was going to mess those guys because they really didn't have anything to mess with them about so what? They killed a bunch of people. They, no one was really, uh, you know, thinking about that. And most racists and most people are insulted when you're, you know, you're a rapist, a child molester, or a serial killer. These guys are none of that. But you, know, you can't just let people beat you up. But is there and, not uh, any? Is there not any animosity or a target just from being kind of like a proper white guy that worked at Morgan Stanley? I mean. From what I've seen in movies, no. that's that's the kind of thing that people want to mess with you for. No, not at all. You, you'd be surprised, you know. And I, look, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but the criminals, real criminals, convicts, that, that doesn't bother them. They have bigger issues to be thinking about, you know, drugs, cells, gambling, all the good stuff that happens in prison, you know, gang affiliations. They're not thinking about a tall white guy that looks like Big Bird that worked at Morgan Stanley. Now, unless that guy gets in debt to them for drugs or whatever, that's a whole different ballgame. But none of those things were true in this situation. And both of them basically just, well, I mean, you should have seen these guys. When they first got here, they were running around like puppies trying to talk to everybody in the yard, introducing themselves like they were freaking in college. And the funny thing is, how inexperienced they were, you could see it a mile away because they thought that the big muscular guys that were just basically muscle puppets were the guys calling the shots. So they're, of course, talking to these guys, trying to get friendly with them, when nothing could be further from the truth. The guys who call the shots are not these muscle-bound robots, but are actually guys that they don't look anything like those guys. But these guys didn't know that. So they ran around the yard trying to make friends with everybody. And of course, as I said, they didn't insult anybody. No one cared, so they just let them be. So they're not 
trying to convert people. They're not preaching and um, doing their whole religious shtick in the prison. Well, Justin, no. The, the younger one, no. He just he got into just mysticism. Again, that whole religious thing, magic. His elder brother, he was feeling his way when he met other people who were Christian or there are Mormons here, there are Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witnesses here. That is somewhere where he immediately began to swim because he could preach to them. He could uh, try and convert them. He did try on a number of occasions to talk to people in that avenue. So yes, the older one did speak to people about this. And he had a few people who would listen to him. And I just thought, this guy's doing the same crap he was doing when he was out. The same thing. It's that whole getting to people through religion. Um, but yeah, it, it, things didn't end very well for his brother in prison, um, which I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, the next episode. But yeah, these guys, uh, the case is very sad. I mean, they, they killed a bunch of people just for basically being blundering idiots yeah so in part two we're gonna get into justin's prison life and sort of a climax if you will that is probably the weirdest one that we've talked about that i can remember yeah so that's that's what we'll be talking about uh, how this kind of ends on the next episode so until then i've been matt ralston and I'm William Nagira. Please stay tuned for the next episode. Uh, this is a very interesting case. It involves magic, the paranormal, and a very weird situation where Justin Helzer ends up dead. So please stay tuned uh, for the next episode. Uh, this is William Nagira. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it.